I built my house by the sea. Not on the sands, mind you. And I built it of rock. And we got well acquainted, the sea and I, meeting in silences across our fence of sand. And then one day, the sea came. And I knew then there was neither flight, nor death, nor drowning. That when the sea comes calling, you stop being neighbors, and you give your house for a coral castle, and you learn to breathe underwater. Uh, hi, my name's Jay. I have a new life in Christ. Uh, I'm recovering from a lot of things, and over the years I've kind of focused on different aspects, but people ask me today, what, uh, what am I really, really recovering from? I'd say it's uh, a lack of trust and faith in God's plan for me. When I was growing up, I grew up in a family of drinkers. Um, my dad drank a lot, my entire extended family drank a lot. I was able to start drinking when I was 13. It was really kind of our, our status quo around the house that um, if anything was like hard to deal with, I would drink, you know? That's kind of how I learned. If you kind of imagine it like being on a boat in a, in a storm, uh, when the storm would hit, um, my pattern would be uh, go into the hull and drink until the storm's over. And then I got to a point where my life had crashed so hard after I had lost my job and I was just failing at it and it was so hard to accept. Um, I couldn't get a bigger boat. There wasn't a big enough boat to make it numb and I found it was completely insufficient to be able to deal with life. And that destroyed uh, my marriage at the time. It was destroying my relationship with my kids. I was crippled with fear and anxiety and depression, and I had no hope. Through God's grace and my wife, I ended up uh, at Cherry Hills with a regeneration program. And so through regeneration, it, it really had a lot of structure to it. Everybody in this program were broken like me. And it really helped me understand and find in my in my situation, like what was happening with me and, and, and what God was doing. Like he really said, you know, here's why you need to change and this is what you need to do. And I said, yeah, but I don't, I don't have any hope. He said, do you have faith? I said, yeah, I got all the faith in the world. So that's all you need. And so I did, I just took it in faith. Just, I just kept trying to understand what, what I needed to focus on and how I needed to just kind of get myself in a place where I was right with God first. Once I got that, everything else around me just started to come into place. In, in Matthew 14, 29, Peter's in the boat and Jesus walks on the water to him and says, he says, you gotta get out of the boat. He says, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he stood there and he couldn't believe it. And he went underwater and, and Jesus says, you have little faith and he pulls him back out again. And that for me was a huge defining moment, I think in my faith, was really connecting with that in the Bible. If anybody's watching this and uh, you find yourself in a situation where you feel like that, that the storm is overwhelming you and that you are completely buried and don't know what to do, get out of the boat. <laughs> Trust in God. 
About a year ago, my wife and I had, either her parents or my parents were in town, and so we had them stay with the kids, and we got away to the mountains. So I found an Airbnb that was on this remote mountain up in Colorado, and we, we drive out there, and it was one of those places that was so remote that as we kept going and going, eventually you lose all cell phone signal, and you're just hoping that what you put into your map was correct. And so we eventually get out there, and it's a small cabin in the middle of nowhere with no internet and no cell phone service. And it was really cool. And then that night, as it starts to get dark, it got really creepy because if you've ever seen a horror movie, most of the time, if you're at a cabin alone in the woods, that's where bad things happen. And so in the back of your mind, that's just a fear that's just kind of there and we're trying to go to sleep at night. And then all of a sudden, this noise right here starts happening right outside of our cabin. And it just keeps going, and it keeps going. And my wife sits up pretty straight and she says, hey, what is that? And I'm listening and I'm trying to be a man, be real protective. And I said, honey, I am almost certain that that is the sound of the ring wraiths from the Lord of the Rings. That's where that is right there. And, and I was like, I don't know. I'm just a Katy boy from Texas, and I have no clue what that noise is. Now, raise your hand if you know what that noise is. Yeah, you bunch of Coloradans. This is what that is. Those are elk. And nobody told me that elk sound like demons in the middle of the night. And so there we are in the middle of nowhere, and that noise is happening. And there was actually a part of me that, that and you can, you can judge this with my wife later that I'm not lying. I did say, I think that's an elk. But there was enough doubt in the back of my mind that fear starts to kind of just rise. And it took, me, it took me an hour and a half to go to sleep because in the back of my mind, it's like, well, this is probably how it ends, right here. We moved to Colorado. We went out to a cabin in the woods and some creepy monsters in the middle of the night, just boom, gone. But fear oftentimes manifests itself when there is unknown, when we're not certain, when, when we're unsure of what's going on or what might happen, uncertain of the future. I want you to stop and ask yourself a, a challenging question. If you really look inward and evaluate, what are your greatest fears? What are the greatest fears that you have in life? Every few years they do a survey where they research and ask a bunch of different people and they take the greatest fears that people have and they put them in a giant list. And some of the same fears are always up there. Fear of public speaking is always a big fear. Fear of death is always a fear. Now uh, is a fear that's kind of been slowly rising up the ranks. The number one fear as of last year is social phobia. And now social phobia is distinct and different from the medically diagnosed disorder, uh, social anxiety disorder. So we're not talking about that. I'm just talking about a general fear of social interactions. And specifically, it would be the fear of being socially rejected. Now, one of the things that Gary mentioned last week, and we want to mention a little bit every week on a sermon series on mental health, is there are real diagnosed conditions uh, that we would encourage you to get professional help 
that sometimes inside the church, people were against professional help. That's, that's counterintuitive to Scripture. Scripture would say, hey, yes, you need Jesus, but, but you should also pursue help for yourself. And so there are things that you need professional counseling or a professional doctor to work alongside. Uh, today, I want to talk about something that's really not the, the professional side. It's just the root of what so often we deal with. That so many, when you look at substance abuse or when you look at, um, at, at just general anxiety and depression, generally, not, not the professional kind, but just generally, so often it's because of fears that we have, expectations that we've placed on ourselves based on what culture says we're supposed to do. So let me give you a couple of terms that are very common today in culture. They didn't exist 10 years ago. One you've heard of, FOMO means the fear of missing out. And so teens especially, this has become something that got coined largely because of what we've seen rise up with social media and cell phones. But there is this fear that I'm gonna miss out on what everybody else is doing. And now, when I was in junior high, there was that awkwardness that existed in junior high where there was the cool group and the hip group, and you wanted to be a part of the cool group and the hip group. But when you went home, for the most part, that died. Like you, you didn't know if you were in the hip group or not, except when you were at school. But now that's not the case. Now for a junior high kid or a high school kid, they always know if there's some group of people that is doing something that looks fun that they don't get to participate in. Because not only do they experience it when they're at school, they also experience it on their phone at home. So fear of missing out is this idea that there are other people doing things that are fun and exciting and amazing. And I am missing out on those things. And then connected to that term is this newer one called FOBO, the fear of better offer. Now, when they've done research on young people, young people are less likely to commit to something now than they used to be. And this is the reason why. That if you say, hey, on Friday night, we're doing a dinner at my house. We would love for you guys to come over and participate. That young people tend to be hesitant to commit. They say, well, that sounds like a great thing. We'll see. We might do it. Maybe. I'll think about it. And, and here's the rationale behind that. Of what if I say yes to going to your house on Friday night for dinner, but then a better offer comes along. And by, be, by saying yes to you, I've unintentionally said no to that. And so instead of saying yes, I'm just going to say maybe. We'll see. We'll find out, because the worst thing that could happen was me say yes, and I show up, and then I find out on social media that there was something better out there, and I've missed it, the fear of a better offer, that social media has amplified a fear that has existed inside of culture for a really, really long time. The famous author C.S. Lewis uh, once stood in front of a group, and, and he gave a speech called The Inner Ring. They turned it into a, a written document that you can go and read. But it's an amazing insight on something that they dealt with 50 years ago and 100 years ago and 1,000 years ago, and we're continuing to deal with today. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. Unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life. <laughs> 
But there's this inner ring, this cool group, this thing that society lifts up as the ideal, the definition of success. And there's a way that we are wired that we desire that. We desire to be accepted. We, are, we desire to be applauded. We desire to be affirmed. And I can spend my whole life pursuing the inner ring, and if I do, it can consume all that I am. And I think the danger is that we're raising up a generation because of cell phones and social media, that that inner ring can become so much more consuming than it ever has been before. And so what do we do with it? Where do we go from here? Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, here's a famous verse that's an invitation to set down the burdens of our culture, set aside the expectations that our culture places on us and instead to embrace his gift. This is what he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That in the first century, they were an agrarian society. So this idea of a yoke made a whole lot of sense. A yoke was something that they would put onto oxen. And as oxen would plow the field, they would be pushing forward, and that yoke would weigh down on them in order to drag the farm equipment to plow the field. So it's this picture of struggle, this picture of challenge. And Jesus is saying, the yoke of the world, that's what it does. That's what it is. It weighs you down. It burdens you. But he says, I am offering something that's different. He's saying, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That Jesus is offering an alternative way to live. He steps into human history. He recognizes the brokenness of our world because of sin. And because of that sin, uh, we constantly are pursuing our self-worth in so many different things. And Jesus is giving an invitation to say, instead of pursuing your self-worth in worldly things, and worldly expectations, step into relationship with me and I offer something that is so different. It removes those burdens. It gives you life. It gives you rest. But then five chapters later, Jesus would say something that seems contradictory to that. Here's what he says in Matthew 16, 24, and 25. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So it seems on the surface like these two things contradict each other. That Jesus says, follow after me and what I will offer is rest and peace and life, an easy burden. And then just a few chapters later, he says, but if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross. Now, we interpret that knowing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. But when he was teaching this to his followers, they didn't know what was going to happen. And so all they could understand is Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, it's going to involve challenges just like, and then he points to the cross, which is a symbol of crucifixion, of execution, of punishment in the first century. And he's saying that's what it's going to be like. Now, on the surface, those two things don't seem like they go together. And yet, they're two sides of the same coin. 
Jesus is saying it is hard, it is challenging to throw off the burdens of our culture and our society. That there are cultural expectations that we've taken on as the norm. Just think of how we define success. If you ask most people, what does it mean to be successful? They would give you an earthly definition of success. It would involve some amount of money and some amount of career and some amount of, of clothes and cars and, and possessions and house and family. Okay, if we check all these boxes and those things, it's not that they're evil or bad things, but that's an earthly definition of success. And so often what we do is we strive after my self-worth being tied up into my job or my relationships or my wealth or my stuff. Am I part of that in, the inner circle? And Jesus is saying, in order to follow after him, you have to change your definition, and that's hard. That's denying what exists inside of our culture. He's saying it's a challenge, it's a difficult thing to throw that off. But if we will do that, if we will step into the life that he's calling us to live, he's saying it is so much more fulfilling. But why is that so hard? Why is it such a challenge? Psychologists would say that part of the reason is because of something called the ash paradigm. Ash was a social scientist back in the 1950s. He came up with this idea, this, this concept, and this is basically what the ash paradigm says. People are susceptible to conforming to group norms even when those norms are clearly incorrect. So here's what Ash did. He hired a bunch of actors and they would be doing something that was contrary to what they were supposed to be doing. And then they would take one person who wasn't an actor and they'd throw them into the mix of that. And they would find that if you are surrounded by a bunch of actors who are doing something that is wrong or different than what you're supposed to be doing something, that one outsider who's not acting would assume because everybody else is doing that, that that's what they're supposed to do. So I'll give you an easy, easy example. One of the things that they've done and they've tested with the Ash Paradigm is elevators. So now when you get onto an elevator, it is considered the social norm to get on an elevator and then face which direction? You face the front, you face the doors. Probably if you tomorrow are somewhere in a business complex and you get onto an elevator and you decide to face the back of the elevator, people are gonna give you some odd looks. People are gonna wonder what is going on. Uh, they're gonna wonder what's wrong with you because what are you supposed to do when you're not on an elevator? You're supposed to face the front. That's just what we do, that's just the norm. And so what they did is they hired a bunch of actors and all these actors, one by one, get onto an elevator. And instead of facing the front of the elevator, every actor faces the back of the elevator. And they pretend like that's the norm. They pretend like you're supposed to face the back. And then all of a sudden, one person who's not an actor, the only person in the room that's not an actor, gets onto the elevator. And what do they do naturally? They face the front of the elevator. But it doesn't take them long to start looking around <laughs> and noticing that they are, in fact, the only person facing the front of the elevator. In almost every single instance, guess what that person does? They turn around, but they don't do it all at once. No one just does this. They all, almost to a one, do this. They all just kind of start to slowly turn <laughs> and they're looking around. And, and then most of the time they'll go kind of halfway for a second, especially if they're up against the wall, they'll go halfway and they're looking around. And then eventually they just say, okay, and they turn. 
and they're faced the wrong way with everybody else. And so they would take that normal individual, and once they got off the elevator, and they would interview them. And they'd say, we noticed that when you go out of the elevator, you face the wrong direction. And they said, why? They said, because everybody else was doing it. They said, I, I thought something was wrong with me. I was facing the way I was supposed to, but nobody else was. So eventually I said, I must be wrong. And I turned like everybody else. Now, now that's an easy example because there's, there's not a right or wrong way to face in the elevator. I mean, there's a socially normal way, but it doesn't make you immoral or wrong to face the wrong direction. And yet there are other social paradigms that we fall prey to simply because everybody else is doing something different. Here's a reality that, that we all need to recognize, that we are susceptible to cultural expectations. There are certain expectations that exist inside of our culture, and oftentimes we fall prey to them. We raise our kids, or we interact in our marriage, we have a certain reputation in the workplace, and those things are not based off of anything other than cultural expectations. This is what we're supposed to do, therefore this is what we do. And doing those things, oftentimes, it's because we are so focused on finding our value, our self-worth, and what everybody else thinks. And we don't wanna be the one person that's doing it wrong or doing it different. And so we just go with the flow. Now, the challenge in that is that oftentimes we miss out on the now because we're so focused on the next thing. And when we are so focused on other people's opinions, it, it causes this thing in the back of our mind uh, where we're always looking for the next thing. There's a psycho, uh, psychological term called the hedonic treadmill. The hedonic treadmill is this idea, uh, hedonic means pleasure. It's a Greek word for pleasure. It's this idea that we're constantly pursuing that next thing. Uh, that if you're not happy in life right now, you somehow trick yourself. Well, if I can just get that thing, then I will be happy. And that thing could be a relationship. That thing could be money. That thing could be fill in the blank. So when they've done studies on people that say that, that have won the lottery, Everybody thinks that if you win the lottery, it solves all the problems in your life. And yet every study they've ever done has shown that people that win the lottery, they think that it's gonna be the one, most wonderful thing that's ever happened to them. And for a moment it is. Their intensity of, of life goes way up. They're very happy, they're very excited, but then guess what happens? It goes back down to normal. And whatever pleasure it is we pursue in life, that pleasure for a moment might make us very ecstatic and happy, but we will always go back down to normal. To, to use a very tangible example, if you walk into a bakery, what's the first thing that you notice? The smell. You walk in, you say, wow, this smells amazing. And your senses fire because of how wonderful it smells. But guess what happens if you spend 30 minutes in the bakery? You stop noticing the smell. The excitement of when you walked in goes away. And so the idea of the hedonic treadmill is if you think that your happiness is going to be attainable through blank, it's just a lie. That unless you are content today with where you are, unless you can raise that overall level of contentedness, you'll never get it tomorrow. It's a challenge that we have in our culture. This, this fact 
I read this week and it blew my mind. It says, according to psychologists Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert, the average person spends 46.9% of their time thinking about something other than what they're doing in the present moment. Now, I have no clue how you do that research and came up with that specific number. But anecdotally, I believe it. And here's why I believe it. Because I do it often. And probably you do it often too because of this thing right here. Because it's really easy to take this thing and we put it in our pocket and we're doing something that has value. Maybe you're, you're having lunch with a friend. Maybe you're having dinner with your family. Maybe you're in a business meeting. Maybe you're sitting at church. And all of a sudden what happens? That thing in your pocket buzzes. And so what do you know? You know that you have some kind of a notification. Maybe it's a text message. Maybe it's, it depends on what notifications you have turned on. And so everything in you now starts focusing on what could that be. Maybe you have the self-control to say, I'm not going to check it. I'm going to wait till the end. But then the rest of the time that you're in there, you're thinking about what is it? Now, it's probably something worthless. You probably got a text right now that you're wondering what it's going to say. And it's just like an emoji that has no value to the rest of your day whatsoever. But in the back of your mind, you're like, what if this is a long lost relative that wants to give me a million dollars? What if I need to check it? And so what do we then tend to do? We, we, we pull out our phone. Sometimes without even consciously making the decision, we pull it out and we start to check it. And guess what happens when we check it? It leads to checking other things. Well, okay, it wasn't that important of a text. Might as well check my email. While I'm on here, might as well check those same three websites that I always check. While I'm on here, might as well. And this thing is meant to suck you in. And so we're so focused on something else that we miss out on what is right here. And they've done studies on uh, social media. So when you get a like on social media, the same part of your brain that likes up, the dopamine hit that you get in your brain that lights up from the like on social media is the same part of your brain that lights up if you were to do a line of cocaine. Same exact part of the brain. This is meant and created to be addictive. And yet, is it fulfilling? In Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 13, Paul is writing. He's talking about the transformation he's experienced in Jesus. And this is what he says. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He's saying I'm not there yet. This is Paul who ascended into heaven. Paul who had a closer relationship with God than you and I could ever imagine. That Paul is saying, look, I don't consider that I've made it. I'm not there yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, look, I've set aside the life I had before Jesus. I'm set aside the values that I had, the systems that I had. Where I sought my self-worth, that is set aside. Instead, I'm turning my focus on Jesus, and I am pursuing Jesus. And then he goes on to say, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. He's saying, how do we make that mind shift? Then we give it up to God. And we, as we're pursuing God, we say, God, help me to change the way that I perceive the world around me. If you've got some question that you're not sure, he's saying, if you will give it up to God, that God will reveal things to you. 
if you are pursuing. Then he goes on to say, brothers, join in imitating me. He's saying, look at my life as an example and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, now that's pretty countercultural. I, I doubt that if you go into anybody's house, that if you go look at posters on the wall, like if you've got a teenager or junior high kid, well, when I was a kid, guess who was not the poster on my wall? It wasn't like a, a spiritual theologian. It wasn't like a Nobel Prize winner. It was Michael Jordan. Like that's who was on my wall. And, and probably that's the same in every one of your houses too. Paul is saying instead of aspiring to be like whatever the common celebrity is of the hour of the day, he said, instead of that, you need to aspire to be like godly men and godly women who are setting an example for you and how to live. And how hard is that? How challenging is that in a culture that elevates certain celebrities and makes us think that that's the life that we want? And instead, turning and saying, no, 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 no. Let's elevate something different than that. Paul then says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So, so now he's talking about this other group and he's saying, look, there's this group of people that, and he's saying this with tears in his eyes, yeah, the most scholars, we're not entirely sure what this group is, but most scholars would say this group is a group that was inside the church, that professed to love Jesus, but didn't actually follow Jesus. He says that group, they're enemies of the cross. And then he goes on to say, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You see, so often what we have inside the church is we have people that want to live lives that look the exact same as everybody else in the world. I wanna have all the same stuff and all the same fame and all the same success, but I recognize there's some need for Jesus, and so I'm just gonna try and sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of that and hope it all works out. And Paul's saying that that's not an option. It doesn't work. He's saying, no, instead, these people, their belly, talking about their desires, is going to lead them to destruction. And then he finishes with this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Now, this idea of citizenship in heaven is something that, that we don't quite grasp. Uh, but in Rome, in the first century, and Paul, we see in his writings, he was a citizen of Rome. Rome had expanded through conquest and had dominated most of the world, but not all the world. And so what Rome started doing is they created colonies in places that were not owned by Rome all over the known world. And the idea of that colony is that it would represent Rome, and without ever having to pick up a sword... It would demonstrate to other people the value that they could experience if they would just become citizens of Rome. Here's how one scholar explained it. A Roman colony was considered an extension of Rome. They promoted the glory and values of their country, protecting her interests. Everything about the colony, the language, customs, 
views, values, dress, food, smells, entertainment was distinctively Roman. Colonies of Rome showed the world how great Rome was, beckoning others to join. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying you and I, if you are a follower after Jesus, are meant to be citizens of heaven. To live a life that looks radically different than culture. Live a life that looks radically different than the world around us. Instead of getting sucked into cultural norms and cultural expectations, we shed those things aside and say, no, I'm going to put Jesus first in all I do. And that the world would take note. They say, what is different about that person? What is different about how they live? That we would be ambassadors of Christ. But in order to do that, here's the mind shift we have to have. We have to recognize, hey, this earth is not my home. This culture is not my norm. That I'm a transplant. That my home is in heaven and I will be there one day. But temporarily while I am here, I'm going to represent those values and what it means. Here's a really challenging question I want you to wrestle with. Who carries the burden of your self-worth? Let me say it again. Who carries the burden of your self-worth? Because here's what we tend to do. We try and carry it ourselves. We, we pick up the burden of our own self-worth and we say, well, I am going to have people love me, have people like me, have people think that I'm great. And the way that I do that is by carrying all these different cultural expectations. But what Jesus is offering is Jesus saying, no, I want you to shed the cultural expectations. And instead of finding your self-worth in all that stuff, I want you to find your self-worth in me and your relationship with Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross for your sins and my sin. Not just so that our sins are forgiven, although that's a huge piece of it, but also so that we might live in a way that experiences life and life with abundance. I've got three kids, and when we go to the airport, we tend to take a lot of baggage. And what tends to happen is I carry about 75% of the baggage. Anybody out there that's in that world? And so what I end up doing is, is we're getting out of the car, and I start trying to strategically place stuff on me. And so I've got the backpack, and then and I try and pick up the, the, the first one, and then I'm trying to figure out the second one, and most of the time I'm starting to run out of limbs, and so you're just throwing it on your head somewhere, and then, then you're picking up this somehow, and then, then you're trying to figure this one out, and then the kids always want their own suitcase, but that doesn't end up lasting very long, and so at some point you start carrying that too. And so this is what I look like when I am at the airport, just dragging it all around with me, everywhere I'm going, and right now, these are all empty, but at the airport, they're not. And so I'm just, I weigh 450 pounds, just dragging this stuff with me. And I'm always the last one, always dragging it through. And can I tell you that what Jesus is talking about is exactly this. That we oftentimes pick up the burdens of our culture. Cultural expectations, we pick them up one by one by one. And all of a sudden, we're burdened down by these things and we're just carrying them around with us. And so what are some of those things, to be specific? I'll pick one out that's, that's not a popular one to talk about, but it's a really easy one to pick out. Kids' sports is a great cultural burden that for some reason we've picked up and started carrying around with us. Somehow we think that 
And even if we don't expressly tell them this, we have somehow demonstrated to our kids that their self-worth is wrapped up in how good they are of an athlete. And families dedicate their whole life and their whole weekend every single week to their kids' sports. And I'm not saying that's evil, that's wrong, but I'm saying if you're not careful, it becomes a burden. A burden that you are dragging around with you. And can I just tell you that I've sat down with a whole lot of college athletes and high school athletes and some former professional athletes that when they got to the end of that career, their self-worth was so wrapped up in their sport that when you took that away, it had disastrous effects. They didn't know who they were. They didn't have an identity. There's not a whole lot of 85-year-olds playing baseball. At some point, that sport dies. It goes away. It does. Uh, my son, sometimes, he, he's 10, and sometimes he gets in this thing where he says, hey, I need a cell phone. Our kid doesn't have a cell phone. And my patented answer that I always say is you can ask again when you're 16. And I said, that doesn't mean you're going to get one when you're 16, but you can ask. I'll let you ask. And he says, that's not fair because he can name 25 other kids that have a cell phone and other kids that have social media. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I, I'm not responsible for that kid. That kid could grow up to be a serial killer. That's not on me. <laughs> but you are on me. And, and can I just tell you something? And this is challenging for my kids sometimes, and yet this is the truth. If I am parenting my kids based off of what everybody else around them is doing, that's not the measuring stick by which we should raise kids. So, so, so the challenge when I start carrying the burdens of culture is that unintentionally I pass those burdens on to my kids. And so here is what Jesus is saying when he gives us that scripture. He's saying, instead of finding your self-worth in all this stuff and thinking that I got to carry all this stuff so that the world will like me and I can fit. And he's saying, no, drop the stuff. He's saying, shed the burdens. He's saying, put me first. And he's saying, my burden it's easy. The burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I know that as we go out to do love extended today, that, that there's also some love that's needed in this room. And so much of the challenges that we face in life, so many of the, the roads that lead to mental health issues and, and substance abuse, that the root of it is a fear. A fear that I'm not enough. A fear that I don't measure up. A fear that I'm not worthy. And so, Lord, I just pray for those fears, God, that today we can lay them at your feet. So we'll never be enough by carrying the burdens of our culture, the expectations placed on us. God, I pray that that question, where do I find my self-worth, God, that it, my self-worth will not be wrapped up in things of this world, but instead my self-worth, my identity can be found and wrapped up in you. And I pray for anyone in this room that isn't squarely finding their self-worth in you, that today can be the day that that begins to change. Pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.